So I'm going to be uh, pretty honest with you tonight, and I hope that's okay. Um, we're all just like a safe place, right? You're not going to get up and run away or throw anything at me, hopefully. If you do uh, decide to start yelling at me, I'll just switch my sermon to like Leviticus uh, or Numbers, and we'll just start talking about lots of names or leprosy. So just keep it in mind before you start yelling at me, okay? <laughs> but so I'm going to, this is like tough for me to say because a lot of, it's like really divisive, okay? So uh, don't judge me too hard, but... I need you to know, I need you to know, that I am a die-hard Yankees fan. Um, so I know, I, some of you are like, that's heresy, how can you be a Christian and like the Yankees, they're straight from the devil, and some of you don't care, some of you uh, like the Yankees, for those of you who do, you love Jesus a lot more than everybody else, so... <laughs> I'm kidding, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. So, but I really do. I love the Yankees. And one of the reasons I do, outside of the 27 world championships that we have, which is a lot more than anybody else, in case anybody's counting, is that uh, it puts me in the same boat with a lot of different people, right? I have something in common with strangers because I like the Yankees. You know, it gives me a shared experience with a lot of different people. And it's like that with any sport or, or sports team that you like. You, you get to be in this narrative of togetherness. There's something to relate to. Like even me and a Red Sox fan have something in common. It's just mutual hatred. But we have something in common, right? That's just, that's just it. That's what's so great about sports. And it's really cool that we have this shared experience in the extreme highs and the extreme lows. Philly fans, you know that, right? The extreme lows. I know, I'm, it's rough. This is rough. I'm sorry. We should start over. <laughs> just, I, love, I love Philly fans. All my in-laws are Philly fans. They're great to hang out with. Um, but really, in all honesty, this topic, and we'll talk about sports a little bit later too, but it, the topic we're covering today is one that I've been wrestling with, I've been struggling with for more than just this week. It's been a couple weeks. And I really think that if I, if I get down to the heart of it, it's, it's the reason that I've struggled in my faith before over and over in my own life. So we're going to start with this question. This question is, what is the definition of the word gospel? Most of you probably know that. It's pretty, uh, pretty simple. It's been, in, in, it's been defined from the pulpit before, uh, but it comes from the Greek word euangelion, which means good news. So when we read the gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, uh, we're reading the good news that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John have to give to us. Everybody's with me so far. I know it's super technical. It's like a breath of fresh air from Pastor Tim, right? <laughs> so today I want to navigate with you what is so good about the good news. So let's think about that question. What is so good about the good news? What is so good about the good news to you, to your family, to your children, to us in this city, to us in this church, to people around the world? What is so good about it? If you're like me and probably millions of other people in America and around the world, you come up with this answer of, well, it's good because Jesus died for our sins and we get to be with God and have eternal life, right? That's like the go-to. That's what I think of. It's John 3.16. It's like, go get him, right? And that's, that's absolutely true. You're absolutely correct in thinking that. But it's just the tip of the iceberg, it's just the keyhole where we get to see this new kingdom, this new life, this new world through, and it's the key that unlocks it and allows us to step into that. See, salvation is the foundation of this gospel, of this good news, but there is so much more to it. 
There's so much depth. There's so much more good news than just Jesus died for your sins and you get to go to heaven. So if we think about it, uh, the world today, it, it, like people don't really care about that line, right? If we were going to go ask somebody uh, or tell somebody the salvation part of the good news, you know, Jesus died for you and came back to life and now you get to go to heaven, they'd be like, so? Like, who cares? How does that help me right now? What does that do for me? They're not sure that they even need saving, right? They're like, I saved from what? My life's pretty good. And then they're definitely not sure that Jesus is the one that they want to save them. See, the salvation message is, is really one that people aren't necessarily interested in hearing anymore. And, and I can't necessarily blame them because if that's what we offer is the gospel, it's shallow. It's void of relationship. It's void of realizing that Jesus relates to every single part of our life. Which brings us to Hebrews chapter 4. And verses 14 through 16 say this. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. The context to, to, to leading up to this passage, uh, I'll give to you in a, in a nutshell, because Hebrews is like one of the most rich and dense books of the Bible. I know it's like four chapters in, and I could, I could teach on that for months. <laughs> so I'll just give it to you in a nutshell. The author of Hebrews has been setting up Jesus to be greater than Moses. So the Jews loved Moses. They were, he was his, their number one guy. And the author up until this point has been setting up Jesus like, no, Jesus is greater. Jesus is better because of this. Jesus is better because of this. And, and he says, you need to hold on to him rather than turn back to your old life. The Jews turned back to Egypt. They said, I want to go back to Egypt because it's comfortable. They turned away from Moses even. He says, don't, don't turn back from Jesus. Hold on to him because your old life, if you go back to your old life, it's just going to cause you turmoil and suffer, suffering deep into your soul. So again, salvation is that confession. It, it, Jesus being the Savior of the world, that he is the only one that can restore our relationship through God, through his death and resurrection, is the foundation of this confession that Hebrews is talking about. The foundation of our confession. But it doesn't stop there. Hebrews doesn't stop there. It goes on and it says that we hold on to this truth because Jesus, our high priest, the one who is sitting at the right hand of God, interceding, going between us and God, has been there and done that, can relate to us. The word sympathy uh, in this context is uh, to have fellow or common feeling or to understand the feelings of another. And the Greek word tempted is both used to describe being tempted to, to bring somebody down or to build them up. See, Jesus understands and has felt all of the temptations, the internal ones, the external ones. He understands every part of this life that we are living, the good and the bad. And the good news is, is that he's overcome the bad. 
And the good news is, is that he gives color and depth and meaning to the good. So yes, salvation is good news. I, I want to like continue to tell you that so none of you come up to me after, are you saying that salvation is not part of the gospel? No, salvation is part of the gospel. It is the foundation of the gospel. But the whole person of Jesus, his life, his death, his resurrection, everything that he is, is the best news. Is the best news. The person of Jesus brings salvation, but he also brings relationships. He brings shared experience. He brings hope. So like 10 minutes ago, we were talking about sports, and all of you kind of perked up because that's something we can relate to, or most of you. That's something that, that kind of you, you understand because that's a shared experience we have, right? That's something that you get because it allows people to understand and have a relationship with complete strangers and with something greater than themselves. And it's always sprinkled with hope. Like down by 30 points in the fourth quarter, win the Super Bowl hope. Stupid Patriots. Or game seven of the World Series, and you're down by a couple runs, and there's hope because you know there's three more outs. Or if you're a Chiefs fan like me, or a Phillies fan like most of you, an Eagles fan, there's always next year. There's always, there's always next year. It's, it is. It's ongoing hope, right? I threw in my team in there too, so don't like, I'm a Chiefs fan. We're not very good most of the time either, so we got lucky last year. But there is. There's always hope, and that's, that's what Jesus is offering us as well. That's the, what the life of Jesus offers us as well, is that we get to realize uh, that he offers us a relationship, that he is real, that he has shared and is sharing through his spirit every single experience that we go through. And that there is hope, and there is a guarantee. That's the difference between hope in Christianity and hope in the world, that hope is, is not uh, like, I, I wish this would happen. No, hope is holding fast to what we know is about to come. Jesus offers a hope that says, you are 100% going to overcome this one day with me and be with me. That's what Hebrews 4 presents to us, and that's what Jesus offers to us. So with the rest of our time, I'm going to look at some of Jesus' life uh, to connect the dots, okay? to show you some of the times where he experienced some of the things that we experience uh, and how he overcame that and offers us the, the same power to overcome. So if we think about some of the major issues uh, that we feel, um, and, and I kind of thought about like the ones that we're not really sure that Jesus probably was tempted by either, um, and I'm not talking like specific to 21st century problems, but like those underlying issues, because if we take this scripture seriously, there is nothing that Jesus, that we experience or tempted by that Jesus wasn't tempted by as well, right? So we're clearly not talking about him being addicted to his cell phone. But we could say that he was tempted by distractions or a reliance on other things or a reliance on other people. We could say clearly that he wasn't tempted with online pornography, but he was around women, around prostitutes, so he was tempted by lust. We could say he wasn't, uh, he wasn't tempted by road rage, but he was tempted by anger and selfishness, and hurriedness. Unless when he's riding into Jerusalem on his donkey, there's like this left lane, left lane camel cruiser, and he got mad at him, but I doubt that happened. Jesus 
was tempted by all of these things and yet did not sin. But remember, the Greek word for temptation is, is really going back to uh, what builds us up, or what, what things we go through that build us up or tear us down, that can tear us down. If we think about it, that's every trial, test, temptation, <laughs> any struggle that we go through, right? Outside of just these specific sin issues. So what are some of the, the worst feelings you've ever felt in your life? Maybe it's a fear uh, um, that you have, or maybe it's a rejection that you felt, or loneliness, or abandonment, or you've been betrayed before, hurt by others. Maybe your, your friends gossip behind your back, and then you, or you don't even feel like you have any friends, back to the loneliness. Maybe you get fired from your job, or you, you don't get hired for the job that you applied for. Maybe... Your family has left you. Your mom or your dad left you when you were young. Maybe you've experienced the betrayal of a boyfriend or a girlfriend or a husband or a wife cheating on you. Maybe you're afraid to go to school because you know you're going to be bullied, you're going to be made fun of, you're not going to fit in with the cool kids. What are these deep feelings that, that you, you don't usually share with someone else. Feelings of rejection and abandonment, betrayal, most of us can, can, can understand those. So for me, one of the times that I felt that the absolute most uh, was when I, when I moved from Kansas to Ohio when I was in eighth grade. I moved from Kansas, uh, a place that I it's the only place I had known, to a small town in Ohio where really nobody ever leaves or moves into except for dummies like me. And so everybody knew each other. Everybody grew up each other. These families go way back together, and then there's me trying to step in in eighth grade. And the first people that I had met when I got there, um, because they lived close to me, they were in my homeroom class, were girls. And so I had friends that were girls right off the bat. And, and, and that's just how it went, right? So we were on the bus going home, and I would sit with my friends that were girls, and they would have their friends that were girls sitting with around us, so I'm sitting with a whole bunch of girls. And I guess the guys didn't like that very much, um, and their friends didn't like that very much, because for two months straight, two months straight, every day when I got off the bus, I'd hear this. They would clap. They were so happy that I was leaving that they would clap. I think it was jealousy. At least that's how I rationalized it. But man, I, like, I had never told any of them this, and if they ever watched this, then they, they would hear this for the first time. But that, as an eighth grader moving across the country, demolished me. Crushed my spirit. I, I can't tell you the, the, the rejection that I had in that moment. So you know what is good news to me now? Is that Jesus felt the exact same thing. In fact, he felt it to the, to the next degree. In Luke chapter 4, uh, and, and you guys can turn there if you want, but we're, I'm just going to paraphrase it for you. It's 16 through 30. Jesus is teaching in a synagogue at Nazareth. That's his hometown. And so these are people that uh, know him. It says, isn't that Jesus, the son of Joseph, and, and so I imagine these are people that he, for the, 
first 30 years of his life did life with, had him over for food, played games with. It's the, it's the dads of his friends that he grew up with joking about. And it's just this community where he knows each face in that room. And so he's teaching, and at first when he's teaching, they're like, oh, this sounds pretty good. Like, get to release the poor, set the captives free. And then he says something that they, they don't really like. And so they, they try to kill him. <laughs> they take him out to a cliff, and they're going to throw him off and stone him, and he leaves. He books it. And I think for us, it's so easy uh, to think that Jesus is, like, stoic, that he didn't really feel feelings, that he came here and was, on, like, all business, kind of like, I'm here to save the world, get out of my way kind of thing. But that's not the picture that the Bible really paints. That's not how real life works. Like, we all know we have feelings that we have to deal with, and, and Jesus was a man, so he had to deal with these feelings, too. Uh, he wasn't an exception Can you imagine being with the people that you grew up with and now they're looking at you like they are going to kill you, literally? They will rejoice when you're gone. So what does Jesus do to overcome uh, this rejection and, and, and this, this betrayal? Which he'll feel actually several times throughout his life. In, in another instance, in Mark 3, uh, his family comes to get him away from a crowd because they, they're like, he's lost his mind. His mom and his brothers come and say, hey, Jesus, stop talking. You're crazy. Can you, like, if my mom came up to me and said that, like, there would be so much anger within me. I would just feel like you're the one that's supposed to believe in me. And, and she's the one trying to say, sorry, everybody. He's just, he, he didn't take it. You know, he's, he's a little wacky today. So what did, what did Jesus do in these instances? And he did, he did two things um, that we can see clearly and, and apply to us because he promises us the same things. One, he relied on the Spirit of God. He trusted his Father. And then he trusted those around him that were doing the will of God. In Luke, right before he was rejected by his hometown, he spent 40 days out in the desert being tempted by the devil, which... I don't think I've directly had that happen in my life, so he's even like one up to me on temptations. Uh, but when he's done with that, the Bible says that angels came to him and ministered to him, and he left there in the power of the Spirit. I think that was pretty purposeful on the Spirit of God to, to know what he's about to go through, what he just came out of, and what he's about to go through when he starts his ministry. In his rejection, Jesus understood that he was truly never alone, that his heavenly Father will not abandon him like his hometown did. Then when his family comes to him, uh, not once but twice, to rein him in because they thought he was crazy, he looks around at those with him, his disciples and those who are following the will of God, and he says, these people, these people are my true family. Jesus understood that, that God will not let us go through this world alone. He will give us his spirit and others who are following him as well to encourage us through that. And God has made us the same promises. In John 14, it says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you the helper, another helper, to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you 
and will be in you. And then Jesus' very last words before he, he leaves this earth are these, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And unlike the world, when everything falls apart and everybody seems to split from us because uh, whatever situation is too hard for them to handle as well, uh, we have been given the body of Christ. Both those who have came before us and those that are around us now. In Hebrews 12, uh, God says that, uh, the author says this, it says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. I wish, I wish when I was walking off that bus in eighth grade that I would have ran to Jesus. I wish I would have known that he felt what I felt and, and, and ran to that because I didn't. I ran to, to people-pleasing instead. I ran to changing who I was to, to fit in. I ran to trying to control everything around me so that people would like me. I wish I would have ran to the good news that is Jesus and Jesus as my sympathizer. So maybe, maybe, maybe it's still not clicking with you. Maybe you're like, I, I don't really struggle with rejection or abandonment or loneliness. Um, maybe, maybe you feel like there is no way that Jesus could ever feel the amount of pain that I felt in my life the amount of loss that I felt in my life. Or maybe you just don't care that much uh, to, to really even engage your feelings. Maybe you feel like there are so many people out there suffering that more than we could ever imagine that Jesus has no idea what that's like, and so how could he engage them? How could he be good news to them? And I hear that. Jesus does does know what it's like to suffer. He does know pain. He does feel loss. He knows what it's like to be wronged. He wasn't the exception to terrible acts, but, but felt them, and, and it was a part of his life as well. And I'm going to show you that in a minute, but I really want for us to, to kind of sit in a, in a question. For those who are suffering in this world, for those who are being oppressed, what is good news? Is the salvation part of the gospel really good news to those who have been sexually abused, who have been forced into slavery and child labor, who have been oppressed by others, who, who are treated differently because of the color of their skin, their gender, their sexual orientation. What is so good about the salvation message to them? And again, I think that the salvation message is good news, and it is the foundation of the gospel and the key of, of the gospel, but it is not all of the gospel. And it is definitely not the part of the gospel that they relate to. So the good news, the good news of the gospel is that to those people, Jesus can relate. Jesus has been oppressed He's been treated by terribly just because of who he is. Jesus has felt the deep, deep sorrow of loss, and he has suffered many terrible things. In John 11, we see uh, John, uh, one of Jesus' best friends, Lazarus, has died. He's really close. Jesus is really close with that family, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And before he does anything about Lazarus, 
because he's about to go raise him from the dead, in case that's the spoiler alert for those who haven't read that story. Before he does anything, he weeps. He cries. He allows emotion to overcome him. He feels the loss of a friend. And more than that, more than that, he realizes that death wasn't supposed to be a part of this world. His heart is broken not because, only because of his, his, his friend is dead, but because people didn't see that he is the answer to the death and decay of this world. So then we talk about someone who was pronounced innocent by the Roman government. I find no fault to him. But he still underwent the worst brutality imaginable. He was whipped, spit on, mocked, stripped naked. He had thorns shoved into his head. It wasn't like a nice, it was like these thorns are like this big into his head. He was walked up and down the street for everybody to see. And then he was ultimately killed, killed the most bru- brutal way imaginable at that time. Life did not end easily for Jesus Christ. He was not exempt from the depravity of this world because he was the Son of God, but rather he took the brunt of it because of who he was. He was not exempt from the depravity of this world because he was the Son of God, but rather he took the brunt of it because of who he was. So what is the good news there? Because honestly, it's tough to see sometimes when I look at, at the suffering of Christ, and I think it was even tough for him to see as he, he was on the cross and cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Well, we know the end of the story, right? The good news is that he didn't stay dead. God raised him from the life. And the good news, the, the good news for those who don't even believe that is that Jesus has the absolute unique ability to walk alongside people who have suffered more than most of us can ever imagine and hold out his arms and say, look, I have scars too. He has the unique ability to to walk over to them and hug them and weep with them. And after he's done weeping, he can say, follow me, come with me, love me, trust me. And one day, one day I will wipe every tear from your eyes and death will be no more, and there shall neither be no mourning, nor crying, nor pain, nor suffering, nor oppression, nor racism, nor murder, nor drugs, nor addiction, nor gossip, nor depression, nor anxiety, nor loneliness, for the former things have passed away. The former things will pass away. So I want to end with with two things, an encouragement and a challenge. I'll start with the challenge. Jesus has given the privilege to us as followers of him today to be his hands and feet. We have a responsibility to walk alongside uh, those who, who don't know Jesus and show them the person of Jesus by our actions. It's our job to go from here, not just with the salvation message, but with the full depth of the gospel. And, and him as sympathizer is definitely not the full depth. It's just another part. 
but it starts to increase our depth and knowledge of that gospel and allows us to, to step into it. So we go out from here with more depth of a gospel, more depth of good news, so we can go to people and, and tell them that Jesus understands them, he sympathizes with them, and he died and came back to life so that they can be free from the bondage of sin and one day live in a world where there is no more suffering and no more pain. So let's go and, and be sympathy bearers. Be people of sympathy. Like our Savior is a person of sympathy. The world needs some good news, and I think that, that this is good news. And we're the only ones that can give it to them. And here's the encouragement, and it's verse 16 from Hebrews 4. Let us then, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. Because of Jesus, we have the promise that we can go to the very throne of God, the creator of the universe, with every part of our life, the good, the bad, and the ugly, and he will give us mercy and grace when we need it. We have a God who has felt what we have felt, been where we are, and has promised to give us what we need to get through it all. Jesus, Jesus is the good news of the gospel. Amen?